Hello, Shlomo Ben David here, welcoming you to this week's episode of Ruminations from Pardes. And this week, it's Rumination 25. People who refuse to say yes to the Almighty's commands can never expect to truly know His will. Every time an important decision is presented to a follower of Messiah, we of course want to know what Hashem's will is. The problem with that approach is that it is often that we forget that Hashem has revealed His ultimate will to us already. It seems somewhat trivial when we consider the commandments of the Almighty as His will, but the commandments of Scripture comprise the most precise and fullest measure of His will that we can know. His instructions are loving instructions for our good. That much must be clearly seen. But, if, but often those who seek to know God's will have no intention of obeying his simplest of commands. Consider that he spoke creation into existence. Consider that his will created something out of nothing. And yet, that will reveals only general knowledge of the Holy One, blessed is he. The commandments that he gave us, on the other hand, reveal his infinite wisdom and his righteousness. That is very specific. Which takes us back to why people don't want to obey him. So, how much do you want to know his will? And with an introduction to Parashat Zav, we have an interesting story. Imagine a young boy growing up in the land of Israel in the Second Temple period. Around the age of three, he may experience his first haircut, possibly leaving the side curls called peyote, like many in the Orthodox community do today. He is an active child and very bright, but regardless of his obvious intelligence, he will still be taught in the same manner as all the other little boys in his village. Beginning at this age, he is taught his letters and given an appreciation for learning and for the scriptures. When the young boy turns five, it is time for him to move to a more formal education. He walks to the synagogue where he is introduced to scripture in a careful and prescribed way. The first lesson involves licking honey from his slate, which has Hebrew letters written upon it. His first reading lesson is from these words of Vayikra, his first memorization project is to commit Vayikra to memory. And just as a quick reminder, Vayikra and he called. Our young boy was like every other boy in his village. In the education he received, it was good training. It was according to the prescription and method later written down in the Mishnah. A five-year-old begins scripture. A ten-year-old begins Mishnah, oral law. A 13-year-old becomes obliged to observe the commandments. Perkiah vote 525. By the time he was 10, he had memorized the entire Torah and many of the Psalms and writings, just like every other 10-year-old boy of the era was expected to do. But our young boy was not just any other boy. At age 3, he was bright and precocious, no doubt. But at age five, the study of Vayikra, it became clear that he was a Gaon, a genius. His grasp of the details and nuances of the opening chapters of Vayikra was uncanny in the minds of the adults around him. 
What was more amazing is how this young boy grasped something that was outside of his family experience. You see, the young boy was not a Levite from the tribe of Levi. His father had never served as a priest. Neither would he ever serve as a priest in the temple in Jerusalem. By the age of 12, even the sages of Israel would marvel at young Yeshua's understanding of scripture. And imagine his education all began with these verses we are reading in our weekly scripture portion. These words of Leviticus were Yeshua's first reading material. These are what he memorized. One might ask, why? What is the purpose for teaching five-year-olds from the book of Leviticus? Especially those boys who would never be priests. Yeshua, our great high priest, is not a priest according to the order of Aharon. Hebrews 8.4 tells us that he did not serve as a priest while on earth. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. So why is it so important for children to learn these verses we are studying? Why did the Master excel in understanding these passages? Yes, they were ultimately his words. And yes, they were about him. But maybe in ways that you have not yet considered. As we saw last week, there is a lot of misunderstanding regarding the offerings, korbano detailed in the book of Leviticus. Gladly, many Christians come to the good understanding that Yeshua was an offering that was efficacious in removing our sin, but sadly, that is as far as their understanding of the concept goes. Why does scripture devote such large portions to these details, and yet other things that seem much more pressing for us? are left to what appears to be vagaries? What did Jews of the Second Temple era understand about the importance of the offerings that we do not seem to? As importantly, why did Jews who lived after the destruction of the Temple in 70 CE continue to study these verses almost with more intensity considering there was no longer a Temple in which to do this service? Why do many Jews today pore over these verses and, for hour upon hour, examine the commentaries? After all, some might ask, what do they know about offerings? Sadly, far more than the average pastor is able to muster. Understanding that Yeshua is the embodiment of all these offerings, you would think it would be the other way around. Why have believers who appreciate the atoning work of Yeshua not develop a desire to understand the book of Leviticus. Beloved, how can any of us hope to even begin to understand the epistle to the Hebrews, or Romans, or James, if we do not understand Leviticus? We can't. Our master memorized these words. As a child, they were sweet, like honey to him. These words speak of him, so they should be as sweet to us as well. Let us briefly prepare for this week's Parsha, shall we? Taste the honey. In this segment, I'll be reading from the Handbook of Jewish Thought, Volume 1, Chapter 5, on page 59, The Commandments. The means through which Israel gains the good for which God created the universe are the commandments. If Adam 
would have kept his one commandment, then he would have immediately attained this goal. Since he did not, numerous commandments are required. It is for this reason that the Torah contains many commandments. It is thus taught, God wanted to benefit Israel. He therefore gave them Torah and commandments in abundance. The essence of the Torah is its commandments. There are basically two types of commandments. In some places, the Torah mandates certain action. This is a positive or mandatory commandment. Uh, mitzvot say. In other places, the Torah prohibits certain action. This is negative or prohibitive commandment. Mitzvah lo ta'aseh. There is a tradition that God included the 613 commandments in the Torah. Of these, 248 are positive, while 365 are negative. And a side note, 248 is the gematria for Avraham, and it is also the number of limbs in the human body, bones, and sinews. 365 are the number of days in the solar year. Many of these commandments, however, deal with the laws of purity and, sac and offering, and were thus only applicable when the temple stood in Jerusalem. Therefore, all of the commandments, only 369, apply today. Of these, 126 are positive and 243 are negative. Even of these, however, many only pertain to special cases or circumstances. The total number of commandments which apply to everyone under all conditions is 270. Of these, 48 are positive and 222 are negative. All the commandments, including their interpretations and laws, were given to Moses during the 40 days that he spent on Mount Sinai. God thus told Moshe, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there. I will give you the tablets of stone as well as the Torah and commandments which I have written, so that you may teach them. Exodus 24.12 Everything was thus given on Sinai. There were numerous commandments that have been known at earlier times. The seven universal commandments have been given to Adam and Noah. Later, circumcision was given to Abraham and a dietary law not to eat the sciatic nerve. Gid ha Naseh to Jacob. Jacob's son, Judah, instituted the Leverite marriage, Yabum. Detailed laws of the marriage and divorce were given to Amram in Egypt. The Israelites were also given other laws before they reached Mount Sinai. The rules of the Sabbath were initially given to them when they first received the manna. Likewise, the laws regarding the honor due one's parents. And certain judicial regulations were given at Mara shortly before the Israelites came to Sinai. Nevertheless, the final authority for all the commandments was their revelation at Sinai. As soon as the Israelites entered into this covenant with God, they were only bound by the Torah as revealed by Moshe. At this time, they were absolved of all previous commandments. It is for this reason that we do not learn laws from acts done before the revelation at Sinai. Therefore, although the Torah embodied earlier laws, it was written over a 40-year period. Its commandments all became binding 
at the instant of their acceptance at Sinai. As a religion, therefore, Judaism did not evolve, but came into being at once with the revelation at Sinai. The Israelites accepted the Torah through both an oath and a covenant. In presenting the Torah to the Israelites, Moses bound them by an oath. This oath was taken by all Israel at Mount Sinai, and it is eternally binding on all future generations. The covenant consisted of three elements. First was circumcision for all males, just before the exodus. Second was immersion for the entire people, just before the revelation at Sinai. Third, they offered offerings. It was through this that the Israelites were accepted like proselytes into their new faith. Immediately after this, the Israelites declared, We will do and obey. Naaseh ve'nishma. Exodus 24, verse 7. Whenever a Gentile converts to Judaism, he essentially duplicates this oath and covenant. He must accept upon himself all the commandments, and then, if he is a male, undergo circumcision. Both male and female must then immerse in a valid mikvah. In this manner, they enter a covenant in the same way that all Israelites did originally. It was this oath and covenant that established the special relationship between God and Israel for all time. Moshe thus said, You are standing before God your Lord to enter into the covenant and oath that God your Lord is making with you today. Today he will thus permanently make you his people. He will be your God. As he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, it is not with you alone that I am making this covenant and oath, but also with those who are not here this day. Deuteronomy 29, 9-14 The Torah and its commandments were given only to Israel. It is thus written, Moshe bound us by the Torah, an inheritance for the community of Jacob. Deuteronomy 33, 4 Similarly, God declared his word to Jacob, his decrees and laws to Israel. He has not done this to any other nation, Psalms 147, 19, and 20. Therefore, no law appearing in the Torah is binding on any people other than Israel. The only exceptions are the universal laws, which are known by tradition to be binding on the entire human race. This is usually indicated by special redundancy, where the commandment is repeated, especially for Gentiles. Therefore, there is no case where the law is stricter for Gentiles than for a Jew. There are few exceptions to this general rule, but these are all governed by specific traditions. One of the foundations of our faith is the affirmation that the commandments were given for all times. It is thus written, Things that are revealed to us belong to us, and our children forever, to keep all the words of this Torah. Deuteronomy 29:28. It is therefore forbidden to add or subtract any commandments from the Torah. It is thus written, All this word which I command you, you shall be careful to do it. You shall not add to it, nor diminish from it. Deuteronomy 13.1 It is forbidden even to interpret a commandment so as to add a prohibition not included in the tradition. God gave the Sanhedrin the power to legislate new laws as they were required. These laws are called rabbinical commandments. 
mitzvot de Ram Rabbanan. When legislating, however, the Sanhedrin had to be most careful to distinguish their legislation from actual Torah laws. There are major differences in strictness between rabbinical commandments and commandments of the Torah. Mitzvot di Oreta The Ten Commandments served as an introduction to the other commandments. They contained the essence of the entire Torah. The Ten Commandments had formed the basis of morality and religion even in times of the patriarchs. They contained the main principles necessary for the survival of the Jewish people, both religiously and ethically. God gathered the entire Israelite people to the foot of Mount Sinai and publicly declared the Ten Commandments. They were then written on two stone tablets. These tablets were placed in the Holy Ark, which was eventually stored in the Holy of Holies in the Temple. It was through the Ten Commandments that the covenant was sealed. It is thus written, God proclaimed to you His covenant, which He commanded you to keep. Ten Commandments, and He wrote them on tablets of stone. Deuteronomy 4.13 in some places, the tablets were called Tablets of the Covenant, Lakot Habrit. This indicates that they contained the words through which the covenant at Sinai was sealed. Elsewhere, they are called Tablets of the Testimony, Lukot Ha'idut. Since they are permanent, tangible testimony to the existence of this covenant, the tablets thus represented the physical reality of the covenant, the special relationship between God and Israel. The reading of the Ten Commandments was originally included in the daily liturgy. They were, however, her there were, however, heretics who claimed that only these ten were actually given by God. Because of them, the reading was deleted. Moreover, it was legislated that they not be read as part of any public service. Although the Ten Commandments are of carnal importance, all the commandments were given by God and are essential to Judaism. The main significance of the commandments is the fact that they were given by God himself. They are, therefore, the only means through which we can approach him and fulfill his purpose in creation. The commandments make Judaism more than mere religious philosophy. It is a way of life involving action and observance rather than a mere confession of faith. The commandments should be observed because they were given by God and not because logic demands it. The commandments themselves define a higher logic. As it is written, observe and keep the commandments, for this is your wisdom and understanding in the sign of the nations. Deuteronomy 4.6 Similarly, the commandments should not be kept because of one's personal taste but because of their divine origin. It is thus taught that one should not refrain from eating pork because it disgusts him, but because it is forbidden by God. It is likewise prohibited to keep any commandment as a superstitious luck charm. In no case were the commandments given for our own material pleasure. The commandments can be divided into two categories, decrees, hukim, and ethical laws, mishpatim. The ethical laws are necessary for the preservation of society. As such, they provide the basis for the moral structure of Judaism. God's decrees, hukim, are commandments for which there is no apparent reason. To some degree, these serve to test our 
allegiance to God in observing his commandments even when not dictated by logic. There's also a third category, midway between the above two, known as edot, testimonies. These laws have no moral basis, but are inherently logical insofar as they serve to remind us of important religious truths or key events in our history. Included in this group are the various holidays as well as such commandments as tefillin and the mezuzah. These are the commandments that bear witness to the important concepts of Judaism. Even where the true reason of, for a commandment or law is not known, we should strive to understand its benefits and symbolism. Moreover, even when the basic reason for a commandment is known, we should attempt to understand the logic of its detailed laws. Nevertheless, even when, even where an important apparent reason for a commandment is known, we cannot depend on the reason to change or restrict any law. This is even true where the reason is specified in the Torah, since there are, may be other reasons that are not revealed. It is also possible that the laws may involve subtle arguments not readily ascertained by logic or experience. It is likewise forbidden to hold God to any reason that we may attempt to give for his commandments. Thus, for example, God commanded that when one finds a bird's nest, he must send away the mother, bird, the mother before taking the eggs or young. However, it is forbidden to pray that God should have mercy on us just as he has mercy on a bird's nest. Any reason that we might give for a commandment, no matter how logical, falls short of its infinitude of meaning. It is for this reason that God did not include the reasons for the commandments in the Torah and did not reveal them to any mortal in this world other than Moshe. Had they been revealed, an imperfect understanding of such reasons and of one's own nature may have led people to make unwarranted personal exceptions to the commandments. We must therefore be equally careful to observe all of God's commandments, to profess to believe in a divinely revealed Torah and at the same time choose commandments according to one's own judgment, is to claim to be greater than the giver. God is inherently perfect, and it is therefore obvious that he did not give any of the commandments for his own needs. It is thus written, If you are righteous, what do you give him? What does he receive from your hand? Job 35, 7 it must therefore be concluded that God gave the commandments for a purely altruistic motive, for the sole good of the recipients. It is thus written, Keep God's commandments for your own good. Behold, the heavens belong to God, your Lord, along with the earth and everything in it. Deuteronomy 10, 13, and 14. The commandments were therefore given as a means through which God would be able to fulfill his altruistic purpose in creation and are all primarily for the benefit of those who observe them. It is thus written, God commands us to keep all these decrees for our eternal good. It shall be righteousness for us if we observe and keep all this commandment before God our Lord, as he commanded us, Deuteronomy 6, 24 and 25. Since the commandments were given for man's ultimate benefit, they were made difficult enough to present a challenge. 
but not so difficult as to make their observance prohibitively burdensome. God thus said, This commandment which I give you this day is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. Deuteronomy 30.11 I should note at this point that Yochanan, in his first letter, in the fifth chapter, third verse, points this out himself. That he says, and his commandments are not burdensome. In giving the commandments, God was cognizant of the fallibility of man. It is thus taught that the Torah was not given to ministering angels. The commandments were thus conceived in such a way that man could not find it impossible to observe them. It is taught God does not act as a tyrant toward his creatures. The most difficult commandments are therefore not those which involve our relationship with God, rather they are those which are required to maintain an orderly society. It is not God who makes the commandments difficult, but man's moral weakness. The main immediate benefit of the commandments is in the spiritual realm. Obeying the commandments brings a person closer to God. Each commandment acts as a nourishment for the soul, strengthening it, increasing a person's spiritual fortitude. Conversely, sin detracts from one's perfection and separates him from God. It is thus written, Only your sins have separated you from your God. Isaiah 59.2 Sin is therefore like poison to the soul. Prohibitions of the Torah were given by God so as to protect us from this spiritual poison. Just as God created a self-sustaining system of physical law, so he created a self-sustaining system of spiritual law. God conceived creation so that a man's good comes, not as a reward for his action, but as a direct result of his, of his action. It is thus written, Righteousness guards the one who is upright in his ways but wickedness overthrows the sinner, Proverbs 13.6. Every human act is therefore reflected spiritually on high. Man's own deeds are thus the means that generate the spiritual closeness that is his ultimate reward. On a universal scale, the commandments serve to fulfill God's purpose in creation. They thus enhance God's relationship with his universe. Therefore, the commandments lead to the manifestation of God's absolute unity in the universe, even in the physical world. Israel thus becomes the means through which God's essence becomes more strongly revealed in the world. It is thus written, To give strength to God is the duty of Israel, his pride. Psalm 68.35 Thus, although the average person may not realize it, the commandments serve the highest purpose in God's plan for creation. They are an essential part of the invisible cosmic drama through which this plan is fulfilled. Therefore, if a person understands the true spiritual nature of the universe, including the nature of good and evil, he will readily understand the significance of all the commandments. It was in this manner that the patriarchs understood the Torah before it was given, and to a large measure observed all its commandments. This is also why the true reasons for all the commandments will be obvious in the world to come when all truth will be revealed. Although the primary benefit of the commandments lies on the spiritual plane, they also provide a great many mundane benefits. A great number of the commandments deal with man's relationship with his fellow humans and are necessary for the preservation of a harmonious society. Thus, the basis of the Torah is the maxim, 
what is hateful to you, to your neighbor, do not do. It is written, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, by Yikra 19.18. And it is taught that this is the prime rule of the Torah. It is similarly written, the Torah's ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace, Proverbs 3.17. The ritual commandments serve the purpose of sanctifying our lives and bringing us closer to God. They penetrate every nook and cranny of a person's existence, hallowing the, even the lowliest acts and elevating them to a service of God. Thus the multitude of laws governing even such mundane acts as eating, drinking, dressing, and business sanctify every facet of life and constantly remind one of his responsibilities toward God. Every commandment therefore serves to make us more holy and godly. Before observing many of the commandments, we therefore recite a blessing including the words, Who has made us holy through his commandments? God likewise said that you should remember to keep all my commandments and be holy to your God. Numbers 15.40 The many rituals associated with daily life also serve to teach self-discipline. It is thus taught, when Israel is occupied with the Torah and commandments, they master their desire, and are not mastered by it. It is likewise written, you shall remember all God's commandments and keep them, and not stray after your heart and after your eyes, by which you are led astray. Numbers 15.39 The commandments also serve to maintain the identity of the Jewish people, keeping them apart from the Gentiles. With regard to many laws, God thus states, I am God your Lord, who has set you apart from the nations. Leviticus 20, 24. The many rituals also provide opportunities for communal observance and fellowship. Individuals are thus able to identify with the community at large. The commandments also serve to unify the Jewish people by constantly reminding them of their unique history. There is constant reminder that you may remember the day you left Egypt all the days of your life. Moreover, remembering our unique history also serves to remind us of our unique responsibilities. The commandments also serve in a pedagogic capacity, transmitting God's teachings from one generation to the next. The Torah thus states that the Israelites should recall the commandments so that their children who have not known may hear and learn to fear God our Lord. Deuteronomy 31.13 It is likewise written, God gave a solemn charge to Jacob and established a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, so that it may be known to future generations, to children yet unborn, and these would in turn repeat it to their children. Psalm 78, 5 and 6 this is of the highest importance since it is only such constant transmission that can guarantee the continuance of our faith. The commandments therefore act as a survival mechanism, enabling Judaism to remain vital even though through the harshest persecutions. Indeed, this is an indication of the divine nature of the commandments. They have kept the Jewish people alive for countless generations, while a single generation's lapse has led to major spiritual and physical debilitation of the Jews. The commandments therefore set limits through which a person can fulfill the divine purpose while living in a world that is essentially hostile toward it. 
through the commandments one can be part of the world and at the same time dedicated to the spiritual above and beyond all the meager reasons that we can give for God's commandments there is an infinitude of depth known only to him God thus said my thoughts are not your thoughts your ways are not mine for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts but the rain and snow descend from heaven and return not without watering the earth making it blossom and bear fruit providing seed to sow and bread to eat so shall the word that emanates from my mouth not return to me void without accomplishing my purpose and succeeding in furthering my goal for it Isaiah 55, 8-11 In this segment, I am reading from Garments of Light by Ephraim Palvanov, 70 Illuminating Essays on the Weekly Torah Portion and Holidays. This is Volume 2, Parashah Zav, The Torah's Missing Verses. In most publications of Humash, each Parsha ends with a short statement detailing the number of verses in it, as well as a mnemonic based on gematria, to help a person remember that number. For example, Parashah Noach has 153 verses, and one mnemonic to remember this is Betzalel, a word which has a gematria of 153. What is the connection between Noach and Betzalel? First, Noach and his family were sheltered in the ark by the shadow of God, the literal meaning of Bezalel. Second is an allusion to the other great ark builder in the Torah, Bezalel ben Uri, who constructed the Ark of the Covenant. The following parsha, Lech Lecha, has 126 verses, and one mnemonic that the sages gave is Nimlu, which has a value of 126 and means they were circumcised. Since the Parsha ends with Avraham and his entire male household getting circumcised, every Parsha similarly has an interesting mnemonic at the end to remember its verses. The mnemonic for this week's Parsha, Zav, spelled Zadi Vav, is uniquely also Zav. This is because... It just so happens that the number of verses in Parashah Zav is exactly equal to the Gematria of Zav, 96, itself. At the very end of the Humash, there is a note on the total number of verses in the Torah. The Torah that we each have today has 5,845 verses. This sounds alright, except that we read in the Talmud in Kiddushin 30a, the sages taught there are 5,888 verses in a Sefer Torah. Where are the missing 43 verses? The Great Hallel The simplest answer to the question is that the Torah is, of course, the same as in Talmudic times, except that in those days they numbered the verses slightly differently. So, for instance, what we today consider one verse was in those days counted as two. This would explain the small discrepancy. There is, however, a more intriguing answer. 
In Numbers 21, we read about the journey of the Israelites through the wilderness and how God delivered a series of miraculous victories for them, most notably over the giant kings of Og and Shihon. In verse 17 of that chapter, we are told the Israelites sang a certain victory song by a well, but the lyrics of the song are not given. Many of the sages were perplexed by the omission. Then came Rabbi Yehuda HaHasid, 1150-1217 CE, and taught that the song of the Torah is referring, uh, referring to it, to is Psalm 136, excuse me. The great Hallel, Hodu Le Hashem Kitov, Rabbi Yehuda says that this psalm was written by Moshe and was originally in the book of Numbers. When King David came along, he excised it from the Torah and included it in his own psalms. This radical comment, along with several others, is probably the reason why Rabbi Yehuda's commentary was suppressed for centuries. Even when a modern edition was published in 1975 by Rabbi Isaac Samson Langa, it was retracted and the second edition was censored. The reason it drew so much opposition is, not surprisingly, because of the potential implication that the Torah may have been tampered with. Fittingly, it is the Zohar on this, week, on this week's Parsha that addresses this very issue. Volume 3, 27b, Ra'aya Mahemna. The Zohar knew that there are those who claim the Torah is not straight from heaven. Such critics point to the various apparent contradictions within the text and conclude it cannot be divine or perfect. The Zohar asks, was King David blind to all these contradictions when he said in Psalm 19 that the Torah is perfect? Certainly not. King David was aware of them, yet still made perfect sense of them all. The Zohar's answer is that the Torah has been purposely jumbled up and made confusing. It quotes Proverbs 25.2 as proof, for it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, and the glory of kings to research a thing. In other words, God conceals and the scholar reveals. It is important to remember that the Hebrew term for thing is the same as the Hebrew term for word, davar. So, the verse in Proverbs can be read that God conceals his word, the Torah, and a real scholar, a king, penetrates into God's word to reveal its secrets. It is therefore up to the scholar to put the puzzle pieces together and unravel the Torah's mysteries. After all, this is the very essence of Torah learning. It is not meant to be read like a novel. The Torah was designed to be intricately complex with four levels of depth, pardes, and 70 faces of interpretation. It was given to us not to sit on the shelf or collect dust, but for us to meditate upon it day and night, Joshua 1.8, and turn it over and over again, for everything is within it, about 5.22. It takes a lifetime to master the Torah, and that's the whole point. There would be no fun and little purpose to a Torah that's crystal clear from one's surface reading. Besides, the Midrash says that if the Torah were in its proper order and all the puzzle pieces in their place, anyone who read it would be able to perform miracles. 
Raise the dead. See Midrash Tehillim 3. Rabbi Yehuda HaHasid knew this well, for he was a Kabbalist of the highest order and the leader of the Kassidei Askenaz mystics, not to be confused with modern-day Hasidism. He taught that Psalm 136 is one of those jumbled puzzle pieces. In fact, a careful reading of Psalm 136 shows unmistakably that it really does not belong in Numbers 21. It is addressing the same events and themes. How many verses are in this psalm? A total of 26, corresponding to the gematria of God's name, the Tetragrammaton. And each verse ends with, Ki leolam kasto, for his kindness is everlasting. So Psalm 136 can account for 26 of the missing 43 verses. Where are the other 17? The Psalm of Moses. Rabbi Yehuda HaHasi taught that it wasn't just Psalm 136 that was taken out of the Torah by David, but all the Psalms that were composed by Moshe. Which ones are these? According to one tradition, Psalms 90 to 100 were written by Moshe. However, it is also agreed upon that Psalm 91, Mizmor Shir Le'yom HaShabbat, was composed by Adam, not Moshe. So, so it isn't necessarily the case that Moshe himself composed all those songs. A more likely possibility is that this set of psalms is the most ancient and were already around at the time of Moshe. Having said that, there is one psalm, and one alone, that explicitly states it was composed by Moshe, and that's, and that's Psalm 90, which begins a prayer of Moses the man of God. This is important for it may hold the key to remaining to the remaining missing verses. Based on the Talmud above, the Torah today appears forty three verses short. The great Hello can make up for twenty six of those, and it just so happens that Psalm ninety has exactly seventeen verses. Therefore the forty three missing verses can be accounted for by Psalms ninety and one thirty six, which, like the Torah, were composed by Moshe. King David came around and took them out of Moses' writings and included them in his own. Now, David lived before the Talmudic sages, so wouldn't the Torah already have had 5,845 verses in their time and not the 5,888 as they state? The answer may be that the sages are not stating how many verses are in the current Torah, for anyone can just count the verses on their own anyway. Rather, they are stating how many verses were in the original set of writings handed over by Moses. The big question remains, why did King David do it? Fusing Torah and Psalms There's little doubt that after the Humash, the most significant, most recited set of scriptures is Psalms. And it has been said that Psalms has the power to rectify nearly anything. And there were those rabbis who stated that if only we knew the real power of Psalms, we would never desist from reciting them. Whenever someone is in trouble or in poor health, the first thing that comes to mind is to recite Psalms. Every word of Psalms is holy, of course, and was composed by David with divine inspiration. In this regard, David was very much like Moshe.
Moses. <laughs> Indeed, we know that the souls of David and Moses were deeply linked. And there were no two greater Jewish leaders in history. It was David that finally fulfilled the task started by Moshe, unifying all the tribes under one's kingship, acquiring and building Jerusalem, and bringing God's holy ark into the city where it was destined to remain forever. According to tradition, Moses was born on the seventh of Adar, and was then hidden for three months, as the Torah states in Exodus 2.2. 2. So he was revealed to the world on the day that would later become the holiday of Shavuot, when the Torah was given at Sin on Sinai. That was the same day David was born, centuries after, when Moshe wrote in his Psalm 9010 that a full lifespan is 70 years, even though he himself lived 120. He was secretly alluding to David, who lived exactly 70 years since David passed away on Shavuot as well. Moses was the seventh generation from Abraham, and David was the seventh generation after Moses. That David was the 14th generation of Abraham is hinted to by his name, the Gematria of which is 14. And the Midrash states that all sevens are beloved by Yikra Rabbah 29.9. The Baal Turim, Rabbi Yaakov ben Asher, 1269-1343, points out that Moses, Moses and David were the only two leaders who were able to pay, pray successfully on the entire nation's behalf, changing God's mind so to speak. See commentary on Numbers 14.19. Thus, when David wrote Psalms, he wanted, to, wanted it to mirror the Torah as much as possible. This is most evident at the fact in the fact that, like the Humash, Psalms is made up of five books. Perhaps then David wanted to make the connection even stronger by quite literally taking a small piece out of the Torah and inserting it into his Psalms. Thereby the two would, for, would be forever linked. And maybe this is why Psalms took on such tremendous power, far more than any other prophetic book. The reason Psalms can rectify anything is because the Torah can rectify anything. As Sifrei Devarim 45 famously quotes God, I have created the evil inclination, and I have created the Torah as its antidote. Since Psalms has a piece of Torah within it, it too carries that power. The Midrash notes that this is what David prayed for when he said, Let the words of my mouth, Imre Fi, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable before you. Psalm 19.15 May the words of my mouth, i.e. Psalms, be written and fulfilled and delved into for generations, and may they not be read like other books. Rather, when they are read, they should bring a reward equivalent to the study of complex tractates of the Negaim and Ohelot, Midrash Tehillim 1. With this in mind, we can further appreciate the genius of David. He knew that the majority of people were probably not going to devote their lives to the study of Torah or plunge into the Torah's depths. How then could they access the same spiritual powers by bringing the Torah into Tehillim? David brought that power to the masses, for even the simplest Jew knows to recite a psalm, while not everyone may be or has the time and resources to be a deep-thinking scholar that can unravel the Torah's mysteries. 
Anyone can recite a few psalms. It is fitting to conclude with the words of the Zemach Zedek, the third Luby Victor Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, 1789-1866. Know that the chapters of Psalms shatter all barriers. They ascend higher and still higher with no interference. They prostrate themselves in supplication before the Master of all worlds, and they effect and accomplish with kindness and compassion. In this segment, I'll be reading from Rav Dessler on the Parsha, Musar Concepts on the Weekly Torah Portions, Parsha Zav, Torah and Midot. The Kohen shall wear his garment, Mido, of linen. Mido means Ke Midato, according to his measurement. The Midot, individual character traits of a person, should be like a garment, cut to his measure. The Gaon of Vilna. Rabbi Kayim Vital, the great disciple of the Arizal, Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, of blessed memory, poses a question in Sha'are Kedusha, Gates of Holiness. He asks why the Torah does not explicitly prohibit bad midot. For example, why do we not have a negative command, you shall not be angry, or you shall not be proud, and so on. The reason, he says, is that the perfection of Midot is a prelude to the Torah and therefore cannot be included in the Torah itself. The rabbis say, who is a learned person whose words can be trusted completely? One who is particular to wear his outer garment on the right side so that the seams do not show. This obviously has a deeper meaning. The Gaon of Vilna explains that the inner side of a robe that closest to the human body represents inwardness and is holy. The, other, the outer side represents the opposite, for Reshaim walk about on the outside. We would be at a loss to understand this comment were it not for the brilliant interpretation of Rabbi Yaakov Haver who writes, in part, as follows. The robe of the rabbis is close to the person's skin. Skin, as we know from Adam's tunic, has a dual meaning. On the outside, it is or, skin. And on the inside, it is or, light. The difference in spelling between the two words, or, skin, is spelled ayin, resh, while light, the inner, is spelled Aleph Resh. This corresponds to the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Elsewhere, the Gaon explains that being particular about one's robe refers to the Midot of a person, as it says, the Kohen shall wear his garment, Mido, of linen, to his precise measurement. This means that he must mold his Midot and turn them into holiness. The Gaon has revealed a great depth of meaning here. The Midot of a person are comprised of good and bad. For example, jealousy toward other people is bad. But on the other hand, to be jealous for the glory of God, as in the case of Pincus, is very good. Similarly, anger can be very bad, but used against evil people, anger can be good. So with all the Midot, the 365 negative commandments, 
of the Torah all refer to acts which are essentially evil, and therefore the Torah commands us to refrain from them completely at all times. Midot, however, have two sides, as we have explained. Therefore the Torah does not forbid them explicitly, because our task is to change our use of them from good to evil. Or, excuse me, from evil to good. <laughs> Inward holiness. From this fundamental insight, we learn that every person has in him a source of holiness. If he uses it, he has the power to change Midot from bad to good. But if he distances himself from the inward truth and approaches outwardness, the desires of the world, and other selfish motives, all his Midot are bad. This is symbolized by the skin, which, on the inward side, is attached to the human being, and on the outward side turns to the world outside us. Thus, a learned person who is particular to turn his robe to the right side refers to a Talmud Kakam, who is in control of his Midot, and always succeeds in turning them to the good. But Rashaim walk about on the outside. The essence of a Rasha is that he is in constant contact with the outwardness of life and never reaches his own internal source of holiness. Incidentally, we see how Rabbi Haver answers the question of Rabbi Chaim Vital. It is not possible for the Midot to be included in the negative commands of the Torah because Midot are not essentially bad. Each Midah can be and should be used for good. Some people ask, since the Midot are based on psychological factors, it should be possible to treat them medically, either with drugs or brain surgery and the like. In this way, we could do away with bad Midot or mitigate them considerably. A religious physician told me that we already have the means to achieve this. Would this not be desirable for, from a Torah point of view? The answer is no. According to the insight gained above, this would not be acceptable from the Torah point of view. Midot are not diseases which need to be eradicated. On the contrary, they are all implanted in us for a good purpose. It is our task to use them only for the good, and this is possible if we make ourselves inward people. But this is a very difficult and dangerous undertaking. How often do we see people making grave errors about their midot? Everyone who gets angry convinces himself that his motives are solely for the sake of a mitzvah. And similarly, with all the other midot, how can the Torah have imposed upon every one of us what seems to be an almost impossible task? Everything in the Torah. The solution is spelled out by Rabbi Abraham the brother of the Vilna Gaon, in his book, Ma'alot HaTorah, as follows. The Gemara says, I, blood, stand at the beginning of all disasters, and I, wine, stand at the beginning of all cures. Where there is no wine, that is, where medications are required, blood stands for desire, which is the commencement, commencement of all sins, the diseases of the soul. Wine stands for Torah learning, 
which is often compared to wine, where there is no wine, that is, in the absence of Torah learning, medications are required, that is, a person has to work very hard on curing his bad midot, but a master of Torah does not need to deal with his midot individually, e.g. by fasting or other drastic methods. All he needs to do is occupy himself with Torah and the fear of God, turn it and turn it again, grow old in it, and leave it not, for there is no better midah than this. Torah learning supersedes all midot and includes all midot. The meaning is as follows. A person who occupies himself with Torah and whose interest lies solely in Torah finds that the midot in their negative aspects simply do not interest him. Nothing else attracts him. Nothing else is worth desiring. There is nothing that is worth getting angry about. In the course of time, from lack of use, the midot will lose their potency and be forgotten like a limb that atrophies when it is not used. When this occurs, a person reaches a stage where it is relatively easy to control his midot and to use such midot only as the Torah requires it to be used. For the sake of Torah and the service of God, in this way, the Torah becomes all around cure for our midot problems. We see the wisdom of Kazal who said, everything is in it. Happy are those who learn Torah and are devoted to it with all their hearts. What was the response of Rabbi Elazar ben Shemua when he saw a disciple very eager to add to his knowledge? His eyes filled with tears, and he said, Happy are you, disciples of the wise, who show such great affection for the words of the Torah. He applied to him the verse, How much I love your Torah. All day I talk of nothing else. These are the people who willingly and joy, joyfully give up all the vanities of the world in order to enjoy life of Torah learning. With this, they have ensured their success in this world and the ultimate reward awaits them in the world to come. Sources cited. Vayikra 8.3 Shabbat 114a Likute Hagra, page 228, Tehillim 12.9, and Ba'er Yitzhak Adlok. See Bereshit Rabbah 20.12, Bava Batra 58b, Avot 5.22, Menakot 18a, Tehillim 119.97. And it's worthwhile to note a couple of verses from the apostolic writings, in particular uh, Yochanan, when he writes in his first letter, first chapter, that love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh are of the world and not of the Father. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For the world passes away and all the lust that are that are in it. But the one who does righteousness, and I'm paraphrasing First John 3, 7, that he who does righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. This is the individual who refines his midot. It would seem that Yochanan is referring to these verses in the Torah when it comes to the priestly garments. 
because the priestly garments also indicate modesty, that we are not given over to such desires. So these are worthwhile to point out, and that ends this segment. In this segment, I'll be reading from the Novominsk on Humash, Parsha Zav, of the, same, of the book of the same name available from Art Scroll, Masora Publications, on Parsha Zav. Vedeber Adonai el Moshe Lemor, Zav et Ahoron, Va et Banav Lemor, Zot Torah Ha Ola. Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Command Ahoron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The Baal Turim says that these Pesukim allude to Torah study, the Sofe Tevos, and letters of Moshe Lemor Zav Et, spell Torah. That is why Torah says, Zot Torah Ha Olah. Learning Torah laws of the Olah is equivalent to offering an Olah, Menachot 110a. The Baal term adds that Esh, fire, and Lechem, bread, are used in reference to the Korbano, as well as to the Torah, which is also called both fire, Yirmiyahu 2329, and bread, Mishle 9.5. Interestingly, the Torah repeats Zot Torah in this Parsha quite a few times. Regarding Olah, Vayigra 6.2, Minka, Ibid, 6.7, Kata, Ibid 6.18, Asam, Ibid 7.1, and Shalamim, Ibid 7.11, as we said, the Gemara explains this phrase to mean that learning the Torah of a particular korban is equivalent to offering it. Yet, previously in Parsha Vayikra, where the Torah commands various korbanot, this phrase is not used. Why not? If we can define the difference between the Holocaust discussed in this Parsha and those discussed in the previous one, it would be that Parsha Vayikra is devoted primarily to the avoda of the korban itself. Hakrava, slaughtering the animal and sprinkling the blood. Parsha Zav, on the other hand, is mostly about the part of the Korban that is intended for the Mizbeach, beginning with the laws of the ashes of the Mizbeach. It is the Parsha of the burning of the Korbano, Hak Tara. Incidentally, this insight explains why the Torah repeats the mitzvah of burning the Homates or Kometz, excuse me, fistful of the Minka and Parsha Zav, Vayikra 6.8. After having already commanded it in Parsha Vayikra, Ibid 2.2, the Rambam, Perush Ha Mishnah, Menachot 1.3, says that the Kometz of the Minka stood in place of both the blood of a regular Korban, which, when sprinkled on the Mizbeach, affected atonement and the innards of the korban that were burnt on the Mizbeach. That is why the mitzvah of burning the kometz is given twice, once in Vayikra, where the Torah discusses the korban itself, and again in Zav, where the laws of the Mizbeach are discussed. One of the main differences between Hakrava and Haktara is their timing. Hakrava is required to be done by day, Menel Code 83a. Rambam Ma'aseha Koberno 4.1, while Haktara may be done by day or by night, 
as it says in Vayigra 6.2, Al Mukda, Al Mizbeach, Ko HaLela, Ad HaBoker, on the flame, on the altar, all night until morning. HaKtorah has the ability to overcome the challenges of nighttime and carry the daytime Kedushah past the day's end. Similarly, Torah is not limited to times of Geulah. It is what sustains us in the night of Galut, when the Kedusha of the Beit HaMikdash and the Korbano is no longer with us. Parsha Zav, the Parsha of Haktarah, assures us that in Galut, when we cannot offer up actual Korbano, we can still effect atonement by learning Torah, Zot Torah. One of the mitzvahs the Torah commands here is the fire of the Mizbeach shall never be allowed to go out. Ibid 6.6 H. Tamid Tokad al Mizbeach lo tikbe. A permanent fire shall remain aflame on the altar. It shall not be extinguished. The Zohar on this pursuit references Kazal's statement, Sota 21a, Avarah, Mekabah, Mitzvah, Ve'ain, Avarah, Mekabah, Torah. A sin extinguishes Mitzvah, but it does not extinguish Torah. The fire of Torah can never be extinguished. It continues to burn brightly deep into the night of Galut. Vayishkat Vayichach Moshe et HaAdam Vayiten Al Kornot HaMizbeach Saviv Be Et Ba'u He slaughtered it, and Moshe placed its blood with his finger upon the altar all around. Ibid 8.15 As the Torah relates from this pasuk, until the end of the Parsha, the Avoda during the Shivat Yemei HaMiluim, the seven days of consecrating the Mishkan, was done not by Aharon and his sons, but by Moshe Rabbeinu. The Gemara in Zevakim 101b explains that Moshe was designated as a Kohen during that time. However, he did not wear the big day kahuna while doing the Avoda, but a white garment, Ta'anit 11b. If Moshe served as the Kohen for that week, why didn't he wear a big day kahuna? Something else needs explanation as well. Rashi Vayikra 9.23 says that the Shekinah did not rest in the Mishkan until after the Shabbat Yemei HaMiluim, when Aharon started to perform the Avoda. But we know that Moshe was greater than Aharon. He was the one who went up to heaven and brought down the Torah. Why couldn't he bring down the Shekinah with its avoda in the Mishkan? Perhaps the answer is based on the well-known halakha that the Kohen Gadol was allowed to wear only big day lavan, white clothes, when entering the Kodesh HaKedoshim on Yom Kippur. This is because a prosecutor cannot serve as a defense attorney, since the eagle was made of gold and the big day kahuna were made of gold, Wearing them would awaken judgment instead of mercy, Rosh Hashanah 26a. But why was this true only in the Kodesh HaKodeshim on Yom Kippur? The big day kahuna atoned for various sins and negative traits Am Yisrael may have had, 
The colors of these garments reflected the different shades of Midot of the people, and they contained an element of atonement for the sins caused by those traits by virtue of being colored. While every sin causes tremendous spiritual damage to the soul of the sinner, there is a certain aspect of Kalal Yisrael that remains clean from sin at all times. The Kodesh HaKedoshim represents this aspect of purity, the realm untainted by sin. The Big Day Lavan have no power of attaining Kapara because they reflect the aspect within which sin never affected the Kedusha of Kalal Yisrael. To enter the Kodesh HaKodeshim, the place where sin could not hold sway on Yom Kippur, the day when the Satan wields no power to accuse us of sin. Wearing colored garments would serve not as atonement, but as a distraction from the purity of Kalal Yisrael. This was not the time and place to atone for sin, but to discount it entirely. Unlike Aharon HaKohen, Moshe Rabbeinu had no part in the Hate Ha'egel. He represented a realm that is purely tov, good. For him to wear the regular big day kahuna would be similar to the Kohen Gadol wearing them while entering the Kodesh HaKodeshim. The Sephirim write that the Shiva Yemei HaMeluim corresponded to the seven days of creation which were pure and sin-free. That is why the Avoda then was done by Moshe Rabbeinu. He was able to pave the way for the Avoda of Aharon. But because he was entirely free of sin, he could not bring about the atonement that brought down the Shekinah. Only Aharon could do that. We read in Parsha Shemini that Aharon HaKohen was reluctant to perform the Avoda because he had been involved in the sin of the eagle. Until Moshe told him, Lechach Niv Kata, for this you were chosen. It was precisely because Aharon was a Baal Teshuvah who had been involved in the hate and could now rectify it, that he was chosen to bring down the Shekinah. Berean's Torah Commentary on Zav The title for this week's portion comes from the word Zav, command, which is found in the second verse. Ve'deber Hashem el Moshe lemor. Zavet Aharon va'et banav lemor zot Torah ha'ola hiv ha'ola al mokda al ha'mizbea ko ha'leila ad ha'boker va'esh ha'mizbeak tukad bo. Then Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Command Aharon and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering, korban ola. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth upon the altar all night until morning and the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it Vayikra 6 1 and 2 command Zav to whom was the command to be given what was commanded the command Zav was to be given to Aharon and his sons and it was concerning the Torah instruction for the Olah that which goes up i.e. fully consumed. For the next three chapters we will read the intricate and sometimes confusing details of how the priests were to go about their jobs in the Mishkan tabernacle. It is enough to make your eyes cross, but it is the divinely ordained protocol by which a worshiper could draw near to the presence of the Almighty in the Mishkan. It is like an 
offering manual for the priest of the Mishkan. Although it is a spiritual exercise, it is completely practical. Always remember that, beloved. Always remember that when you read such things, they are describing real things done by real people for a very real reason. These verses are not there so that some could merely spiritualize them, which stands to reason when you consider that most people who are predisposed to reading the book of Leviticus as one big metaphor never really bothered to truly study this book, this book that our master memorized at an early age. That does not mean these words do not have spiritual or homiletic value. They do. They are a shadow that shows us the outline of the Redeemer. By these verses, you can know the shape of his redemptive hand. This week, try to pay attention to the details. It will be worth it. These details relate to how Aharon and his descendants were to handle the Corbano offerings. Remember the five major Corbano we learned about in last week's portion. Korban Olah, Elevation Offering, Leviticus 1. Korban Minka, Grain Offering, Leviticus 2. Korban Shelamim, Peace Offering, Leviticus 3. Korban Katat, Sin Offering, Leviticus 4. Korban Asam, Guilt Offering, Leviticus 5. Remember that of these five, only two were directly sin-related. And not all are mandated, some are voluntary. What I am immediately drawn to when I read Parsha Zav is the way that it opens and the way that it closes. It begins with command Aharon and his sons, Leviticus 6.2, and ends with so Aharon and his sons did all the things that Hashem had commanded by the hand of Moshe, Leviticus 8.36. Wow, they did it all. Not, they tried to do it. Not, they did the best that they could. Not even, they did it. They did it all. Apparently, Aharon and his sons understood something that we may not. God is not only a God of detail. He's infinitely more holy than we can imagine. Once you get a glimpse of the Corbano offerings as something good and necessary, you will begin to see these verses in a new light. Remember, although the Corbano did not all have to do with the sin of the worshiper, they all were about providing a covering for the worshiper so that they could be in the presence of the Almighty without dying in the process. Remember, our God is a dangerous God as well. Remember that He is a loving God who desires to fellowship with us he delights in our worship of him. What a service of worship it must have been to draw near to him in the smoke of Korban Olah, offering that goes up, a burnt offering. How much more a service of worship is it to draw near to him in the Korban of Yeshua, who was ascended, excuse me, who has ascended into his presence and sits at his right hand? Yes, dig deep, beloved. There's much of Yeshua in these words, and even in the very letters. The Passover, the Pesach. Speaking of Korbano, what kind of Korban would you think the Passover lamb was? The Passover lamb was called the Pesach, Passover. It is the name of the festival 
but it is also the name of the korban offered and eaten at the time of the festival. Knowing that fact takes some of the difficulty out of reading verses like this. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, Pesach, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare, that you may eat the Passover, Pesach? Mark 14.12 You ate the Pesach. You ate the Passover. The Korban of Passover is thus simply called the Pesach. But what kind of Korban is it? It is clearly unique because, although it was to be killed in the Mishkan, or wherever God placed his name, i.e. Jerusalem, it was to be eaten by each family in their place as they did in Egypt. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you offer the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. You may not offer the Pesach within any of your gates which Hashem your God gives you, but at the place where Hashem your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall offer the Pesach at twilight, at the going down of the sun, at the time you come out of Egypt. Deuteronomy 16, 4-6 Yeshua died at Passover, and it was clearly for our sin that he gave himself voluntarily, and his work both atones for us and carries our sin away, never to be remembered. But the Pesach was not a really, was not really a sin offering. Remember, of the five major korbano, only two are directly for sin. Truly, the Pesach belongs in a category all its own, very much like the Yom Kippur korbano. However, unlike Yom Kippur korbano, the Pesach was eaten. Not only that, it was to be eaten by each household. No sin offering is ever to be eaten by anyone other than the priest. Ah, but if you're a student of the Torah, you already know that. All sin and guilt offerings fall into the category of most holy, which means that they either are not eaten at all or they remain in the temple confines and are eaten only by the males among the Kohanim, priestly families. The closest of the five major korbano that the Pesach could be compared to would be the personal peace offering, which Leviticus 3 calls peace unto Hashem. Shalomim la Hashem. It is similar in these ways. The Pesach must be offered in the Mishkan, or temple. The Pesach may be slaughtered anywhere in the courtyard, unlike most which have specific location. The Pesach is considered Kadashim, Kalim, Lesser Holiness. Because it is Kadashim, Kalim, the Pesach may be eaten anywhere in the camp, or Jerusalem. Reading some of these and trying to see a homiletic reason behind them might make you wonder if Yeshua really is represented in the Pesach. After all, it seems as if this is a minor korban. But appearances can be deceiving and the Pesach was anything but minor. Seeing the similarities between the Pesach and the personal peace offering shows us not only the purpose of the first Pesach, but also of the ultimate Pesach. Yeshua, the Lamb of God. Although for me personally, in my study of this matter, um, it cannot be surmised in a literal sense, but rather in the mystical. For there are sources that point to 
Yeshua's offering as a mystical one and strictly symbolic as he never said of himself that he used the Pesach offering nor is there any place in the Gospels that make reference to this but this is a study that is worth delving into because it brings up some questions you know that don't have definite answers there are many aspects to Yeshua's offering in my studies thus far that point to the fact that as the writer of Hebrews writes are deeply mystical and these things need to be understood but they can only be understood by someone who has elevated his himself to a point where the mystical attributes can be made known to such an individual The purpose of the personal peace offering was to bring unity and wholeness in the relationship between the worshiper and Hashem. It was a voluntary act of intimate worship. The first Pesach was the way that God covered his people from the wrath that he poured out on Pharaoh and Egypt. It was the means by which their freedom was finally realized. But remember the reason for their freedom? God said, let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 7.16 the first Pesach was to bring harmony and unity between God and his people. It brought intimacy between God and his brother, betrothed. Likewise, Yeshua has brought wholeness and unity between Hashem and each individual who is his disciple. Yeshua's work that, that Passover so long ago was an act of love and intimacy. It was truly a peace offering, as scripture tells us. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have shalom with God through our Master Yeshua, the Messiah, Romans 5.1. To bring shalom is not the absence of conflict, but to bring wellness, completeness, and intimacy to a relationship. Our shalom with the Almighty leads us to shalom with our brothers and sisters. This explains a passage that says, Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Messiah, our Passover, Pesach, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, Passover, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. This is another verse that requires unpacking and delving into, because Shaul here is alluding to some mystical sources. And those who are learned in the Kabbalah would do well to delve into these aspects. Anyway, Yeshua is our Pesach. His work is pictured in the Pesach offering and the personal peace offering. As we examine the Korbano of the Torah, we can clearly see Yeshua's work being outlined in them. Truly, Yeshua's work at the cross was an expression of all of them. But some things about the Pesach that differ from the personal peace offerings are hard to, to simplify, gloss over. See if you can see some reasons why differences are important. The personal peace offering could be a male or male of female sheep, goat or cattle. The Pesach can only be a male lamb. The blood of the personal peace offering was to be thrown against the altar in two applications. The Pesach was to have its blood poured only once. With the personal peace offering, only parts could be eaten by the worshippers, with the breast and the thighs going to the priest and their families. The Pesach was entirely eaten by the worshippers. 
The personal peace offering could be eaten over the period of two days. The Pesach must be eaten immediately and must not remain after midnight. Yes, beloved, these details reveal shadows of our Master's work, do they not? His outline is clearly seen in them, even in these apparently minor points. Prayer focus for Zav, Tit Barak, may you be blessed. The Sakharit morning prayer service begins with prayers of praise for God as Creator. In his work at the beginning, we know that angels were created early on. Drawn largely from passages in the prophets, this prayer reflects upon the angels' response to the Almighty and how they praise him continually. As Isaiah and Revelation tell us, these holy ones are ever before the throne of the Almighty, singing his praises. May we join them in praise of our Redeemer and King. May we too accept upon ourselves the yoke of heavenly sovereignty daily. Tit Barak, may you be blessed, our Rock, our King and Redeemer, Creator of Holy Ones. May your name be praised forever, our King. O Fashioner of ministering angels, all of whose ministering angels stand at the summit of the universe and proclaim with awe together loudly the word of the living God and King of the universe. They are all beloved. They are all flawless. They are all mighty. They all do the will of their maker with dread and reverence. And they open their mouth in holiness and purity, in song and hymn, and bless, praise, glorify, revere, sanctify, and declare the kingship of the name of God, the great, mighty, and awesome King. Holy is He. Then they all accept upon themselves the yoke of heavenly sovereignty from one another and grant permission to one another to sanctify the one who formed them with tranquility, with clear articulation, with and with sweetness. All of them, as one, proclaim His holiness with awe. Holy, holy, holy is Hashem, Master of legions. The whole world is filled with His glory. From the Art Scroll Askenazic Siddur.